This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. Today, we're chatting with Mark Miller, a journalist who covers issues related to retirement and aging. He writes three columns, including for Reuters, and his work appears in other places as well, like the New York Times and AARP magazine. Mark is the author of The Hard Times Guide to Retirement Security, Practical Strategies for Money, Work, and Living. It's a great book for anyone grappling with this kind of transition. And today he'll share some of those tips from his book. We'll also ask Mark about his most recent book, Jolt, Stories of Trauma and Transformation. This one is about how some people survive very difficult life events, like the death of a child, but ultimately they experience transformation and they come out stronger than ever. Mark, you're a very busy writer and you're well known for your books and your articles and your speeches, all kinds of activities all about retirement and mid-career shifts, sometimes to more meaningful work. And we want to touch on a lot of those themes. But but first, you've got a pretty busy, active, varied career, it looks to me. Will you tell us a little bit about what kind of portfolio of work you've put together? Sure. And and Bev, thanks so much for having me on the program. I really appreciate it. Um, Well, you know, my own career path, I, I come out of a, a background in business and financial journalism. That's kind of how I grew up in journalism over the years. Um, and I got interested in writing about retirement. About 15 years ago, I was working at the time at the the Tribune Company here in Chicago, publisher of the Chicago Tribune, and was I was working in a group that was working on new new product development. And I I had just been observing, it was around the time I was turning 50 myself, and I kept noticing that all my friends starting to talk about, you know, what were they going to do when it came time to retire, and, you know, thinking ahead to, you know, gee, I don't want to do a traditional retirement, what am I going to do when I get to that age, and it just seemed like it was such a topic of buzz that I thought, oh, there must be something here, so I, that's how I really, it just sort of started with an observation, and wound up working on a magazine and website project at Tribune related to that that only lasted a few years, but uh, I, I still came away from it, from that uh, quote-unquote failure, that feeling like there was a lot of, of important uh, work to do in the field. So that was the point at which I decided to peel off, get out of uh, life in big corporate publishing and start pursuing things on my own. So you know, and I think that's a question a lot of people struggle with is that question of, you know, pursuing things that interest them or that they feel in their gut versus what is going on in an environment they work in. Absolutely. It, it's, it can be a big and scary leap. Well, I know you have an excellent online platform, your your website, retirementrevised.com. I've read some good things there. But you're also... Um, doing something a little bit different with your newsletter. You want to tell us about that? Right. So I launched my website, Re- Retirement Revised, uh, back at the time when I got started with all this. And the 
you know, the online ecosystem has just changed so much over the years. I think it's very difficult these days for smaller websites to really prosper as businesses. And so I've started to experiment with a, a paid newsletter that that is connected to the website uh, that comes out weekly for people who really want to take a deep dive into topics related to retirement. So if any listeners are interested, you can find information about that on retirementrevised.com under the newsletter link at the top of the page. But you know, really, the the main way that I make a living is as in either you'd call me either a freelance writer or an independent contractor. So I write a weekly column and, and have done now for about 10 years. I write a weekly column for the Reuters News Service. Um, I write uh, twice a month for Morningstar.com, you know, it's a big personal finance and investing website. And then I do a column for uh, a magazine and website based in New York that is written for financial planners. So this is like a slightly different audience. But again, I write about retirement topics and then occasional pieces for folks like the ARP magazine and the uh, Sunday New York Times business section. So those are more kind of occasional projects. But those first three that I mentioned are really the the things that I'm doing week in and, and month in, uh, you know, year throughout the year and then book projects. So, yeah. <laughs> so busy. you've got, you've put together quite a portfolio. And if you're like many of us, you didn't envision the breadth when you were starting to think about this. Do you have suggestions for people who may be just starting to think about a leap like that, whether, whether it's um, early retirement or I think there are a lot of mid-career people who are thinking about doing something like this. How, how do you get started um, if if you're just starting to think about it and didn't have the kind of background you did in in studying the topic? Well, I think if we're t- if it's a career leap, we're talking about. I'm a sort of a big fan of testing out your ideas in whatever way might be possible. If that means doing something on the side while you're still working full time. Uh, you know, either in a freelance or consulting capacity or finding a way to do some volunteer work, you know, if that's appropriate. You know, it's important to take the idea out of the realm of just floating around in your head and get out there and really see what's going on. You know, can you, could you, uh, you know, do an, an internship or apprenticeship for somebody already working in a field? And certainly do your research. Like, you know, I mentioned earlier how I had done the business plan for that magazine project that, you know, provided the basis for me to understand that there was a good opportunity out there to write about retirement. And that, that worked out well for me as a freelancer is because a lot of the ideas that I understood from having done doing the business planning indeed pans out. I mean, what I mean by that is that all these publications that I write for are seeing the same kind of demand for the the kinds of stories I write. So they see strong traffic. You know, for example, whenever I write stories about Social Security, uh, you know, those do exponentially better than anything else that I write, and they always do really well for the publishers. And, and it's so complicated. Them. It's so difficult that if you are able to write nice and simply like you do, there's got to be a lot of people who need that information. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, Social Security in particular is, uh, you know, it's it's the one universal retirement benefit that, you know, affects most of us in retirement uh, as compared, say, to investing or you know, 401ks and IRAs can be very important. But um, only maybe about half the country has those, whereas most of us are going to receive Social Security benefits. And so people need to understand how that works. 
Well, what about um, people who are much earlier than Social Security and are trying to figure out how they're going to plan for the future? There's one group that that I know of, of young professionals in Washington, lots and lots of young or youngish journalists who are starting to think, oh, we may have to take responsibility for this. But they're really struggling with student loan debt, just massive debt. What do you do if you're maybe 40 and you still have student loans and you haven't begun to think about retirement? How, how do you juggle that? Right. Well, I, I think I would frame the question just a little more broadly, which is the question of, you know, where does retirement saving fall in the, the hierarchy of, of important things to do uh, at a younger age, as opposed to dealing with debt and the like? And the way I, I think, you know, the kind of the steady drumbeat in the press about the importance of saving for retirement can sometimes overshadow what I think are more sort of first order uh, tasks that people should be thinking about. So uh, what I mean by that is, you know, it doesn't really make sense in my mind to be saving for retirement if you are carrying uh, a balance uh, on your credit card, you know, with very high interest rates. And student loans, you know, I think fall into a couple categories that are so, some student debt is is worse than others because of the way that interest rates are structured on these loans. So some some of them are you know, quite low, the interest rates are quite low, you know, the subsidized loans, and some of them are quite high. So if the question is carrying high interest rate student debt, then I would think about that as I would a credit card, and I'd want to get rid of that debt before I would put a dollar into retirement saving. And the other thing I would do before I save for retirement is to make sure I have a cushion of, of liquid emergency reserves in case something happens. I lose my job or I have a big, you know, uh, unexpected maintenance ex- expense to pay for you know, car repair, home repair. You know, the general advice out there is people should have anywhere from three to six months of emergency, you know, living expenses set aside where they can be easily tapped. And that means not in a retirement account. So, you know, I think we need a more holistic view of, um, of household finance than just the importance of saving for retirement. And frankly, I think it's one of the problems that has cropped up with the increasing automation of the retirement saving system. And what, what I reference there is, you know, we've had this trend among workplace retirement plans, you know, 401ks to automatically enroll new workers in the plan and to um, then auto, you know, set in place even automatic escalation of contribution rates on an annual basis. And there's a lot to be said for this. I mean, it's increased um, the percentage of workers who are saving, and that's a good thing in general. But um, it doesn't take into account that some households need to be doing these other things first. And so, you know, there's been some interesting research about what's called, you know, debt-financed retirement saving. You know, you're yeah. you're setting aside one dollar but paying interest on a credit card on the other side. That doesn't make any sense. The math doesn't work. We'll be back with more after this. Ready to advance your career while accommodating your busy schedule? Central Ohio's only Executive Master of Public Administration program for working professionals can help you. 
It's conducted by the Ohio University Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at the new Ohio Dublin Center campus. It's affordable and meets just three weekends per semester. No GRE is required for admission. For more information, visit oempa.ohio.edu. Planning and looking at things holistically and looking at the big picture is important as you're thinking about a transition. And But now I want to change gears a bit to talk about another kind of transition that you addressed in your, your really nice new book, Jolt, which looks at people who make a great change in their life because something really awful happens to them. Would you want to tell us about about what you mean by a, a jolt and and um, maybe share some of the stories or a story from the book? Sure. So I got interested in this topic because one of the one of the topics that I cover within the retirement portfolio is career change. And as a, a kind of a subtopic of career change is the the topic of the encore career, people moving into second careers, that are aimed at having a social purpose or greater greater meaning, social entrepreneurship. And having covered that topic a lot over the years and, and interviewed a lot of people who have made those leaps, I started to notice this interesting pattern that a fair number of people who made those changes, not, not all, but a, really a noticeable number, were spurred to do it after something really traumatic had happened in their lives. And I got to a point where I could almost kind of tell when I was about to hear the painful traumatic story as I was listening to people describe how their lives had changed. And it, what I found is that the traumatic life event was something that just completely rattled their world to their core and put them in a place where the traumatic life event just caused them to question everything about how they were living their lives and what they were doing and, and a need to, assemble a new sense of meaning in their lives because their sense of meaning was just blown away or shattered. And so they had found ways to put their lives together in new ways that had you know, to restore that sense of meaning and purpose. So having heard these stories, I did what any good journalist does, said, I want to know more about that. So I proposed a story about it, a feature article for the AARP magazine in 2015, which I did. And that article came out, it was called Surviving the Jolt. And actually the word jolt was uh, suggested by one of my editors at the magazine. But in the course of reporting the story, I really literally stumbled across the fact that not only was I just hearing these random stories, but there was an entire field of clinical research in psychology about this and that the experts who had studied it had given this phenomenon the na a name, which is post-traumatic growth syndrome, post-traumatic growth syndrome, or PTG. Oh, that's interesting. So a at that point, I, so now I'm saying to myself, oh, it's not just these you know, random stories that I'm hearing. There's really a, this is really a thing. So having done this feature article, which ran, I don't know, a few thousand words, I, I said, there's really a lot more here. So that's when I decided I wanted to take it further and do a book. And so the book, Jolt, is, you know, a, a, an in-depth exploration of this phenomenon and, and all the different facets of it. And it goes 
it goes way beyond just the encore career. It, it describes a, a wide array of different types of changes people undergo. And then I also broadened it out well beyond just older people because the encore career thing is sort of a close to retirement phenomenon. You know, it's a, I, it's a second act sort of an idea. So the book goes wider from an age perspective and, and very much wider in terms of exploring what is this phenomenon. So, you know, I, I tell a lot of, it's, it's really storytelling. You know, the book is called Jolt, Stories of Trauma and Transformation with emphasis on the word stories. And um, I tell a lot of different kinds of stories in there of trauma. Some of them are very dramatic, uh, the loss of a loved one or somebody who survived a plane crash or natural disaster. You know, some of them are more everyday traumas, you know, a serious illness, an emotional setback. Is there one that really leaps out for you? Well, you know, the, the, the favorites for me are the social change agents, just because I have such a high r- regard for that. But, you know, one, st- one story that really, it, it, there are a lot of stories that stick out for me. You know, it's almost like, you know, name your favorite child. But um, I'll, just to give an example of one that I think is just a story that just blew me away. It's a story of a, a couple named Liz and Steve Alderman who live in the suburbs of New York City. And um, he was a physician. She was a, a teacher and a part-time teacher, part-time stay-at-home mom. They'd raised several kids. And their youngest, uh, Peter, Peter Alderman, was a young guy in his 20s uh, who uh, died on 9-11 in the World Trade Center. He had a job working for uh, Bloomberg and happened to be in the World Trade Center on 9-11 for a conference and lost his life on, in in the World Trade Center. And, you know, the first part of Liz and Steve's story and the aftermath of that was probably fit a pattern that, that a lot of us have heard with lots of families who were grieving losses in the wake of 9-11. Liz, in particular, was looking for, they were looking for a way to make sense of everything and memorialize their son as she got initially involved in some of the 9-11 memorial work, uh, that wasn't a good fit for her. She she tried out at a few different things. Uh, but about a year and a half or two years after Peter's death, she was up late late one night watching uh, ABC Nightline. And there was a she, – she didn't sleep well in those days. She would be up watching TV late into the night very frequently. And there was a feature piece on the show about – Harvard psychologist who was doing work in post-conflict societies in mainly in Africa, uh, working to to establish mental health clinics in post-conflict societies where it was just mass level trauma. You know, people who had witnessed you know their entire families being slaughtered in front of them. And this story just reached out from the TV and grabbed her by the throat. Something galvanized her about it. And she said, this is what we have to get involved in. And Liz and Steve went on to, you know, working in, in cooperation with this, this person at Harvard to start a, it, it's called the Peter C. Alderman Foundation, but it's not really a foundation. That's kind of a misnomer. It's a, it's a nonprofit that works to establish mental health facilities in post-conflict societies. They've devoted their lives to that. And one of the reasons I love the story so much is that it, it illustrates one of the key ideas in the book, which is, I call it kind of a radical sense of empathy. And 
one of the main phenomena that you find in people who have come through post-traumatic growth experiences is that they have this radicalized sensitivity or ability to empathize with others. What I mean by that is this, that you know, we all have the ability to empathize to one degree or another. And I, I think about it and I describe it in the book as something that moves out in concentric circles. So it starts with the ability to empathize, you know, in your immediate circle of family and friends. And then the next circle perhaps might be your community. And there might be circles around that in your professional life. But those that ability to empathize weakens, generally speaking, as we move further out. So when we read stories in the news about awful things going on halfway around the world, sometimes it can be very difficult to connect with that. But the Alderman story shows this ability to connect and empathize in a truly radical way. I mean, Liz and Steve's response to the loss of their son at the end of the day was not to work directly with, you know, victim families and not related to 9-11 or anything even here in the United States. It was to reach out and try to work on a problem halfway around the world, this radicalized ability to empathize with others. And so it's one of the reasons I like that story so much. But, um, you know, <laughs> I love all the stories. <laughs> well, these stories are um, moving and um, they're hard to read without the reader feeling some empathy. It must have been um, a little, if not traumatic, it must have been moving for you to immerse yourself in stories after story after story. Did you um, feel that it had an impact on you? Has it changed you in any way to write this book? It was a very, it was very moving. It was a very emotional experience. You know, I spent a lot of time with, with many of the folks in the book. Um, and I, you know, I've met just some in, amazing, incredible people. So it was a very enriching experience. But to your question, uh, you know, I think it was kind of reinforcing for me of some things that I, have been important for me really over the last decade or so in, in my life and my work. Um, you know, part of that career transition that we discussed at the beginning of our conversation that I went through did come out of a sense of um, urgency about how I wanted to spend my own time. You know, I think what, one of the things I write about in the book is the importance of contemplating one's own mortality. You know, I think it's easy to always sort of not, it's easy to think, hey, I've, I've got time. I can always get to this and that later. But at some point you need to move on with things. And so I had gotten to a point in my own career where I was dissatisfied with what was going on and needed to make a change. And that's something that's been really reinforced for me by writing the book because it was really one of the things that was so striking to me in talking to people who I profile in the book is the extent to which they value the change that they've gone through. They place such a high value on it that when I would ask them the question, you know, if you could wave, I asked everybody this question, if you could wave a magic wand and, and reverse the clock and, and make it so that the, the trauma never happened, would you do it? And almost to the last person, they would say, no, I wouldn't. You know, even though they've gone through this awful experience, they so highly value where they are now that they would not trade it back. Now, the important caveat here is that in any story involving the loss of a loved one, 
the Alderman's and the others, uh, of course they would wave the magic wand. But but even so, you know, Liz Alderman talked to me about how important it's been the journey that she's taken since then that she places such a, such a really high value on it. She she would sort of say it on you know in the very next breath, and so that really to me just reinforced this need to live mindfully and with a sense of gratitude and that every day matters. And I, I know that may sound a little saccharine, uh, but um, that's the way I came away from it. And I felt like, you know, the move, I, it was reinforcing of the move I made a decade ago and it's just pushed me to even continue further down. That, that, down reson- that resonates with me. I've, kind of made similar changes. And these days I'm a coach. And so I often talk with people. I'm a career coach, but very often people are thinking about a transition, yeah. not just because they want to do different work, but they want something else in their life. Right. And they come to coaching because they don't know how to start. And I think that's really a place that a lot of people are stuck. They they feel like something's missing, but they don't know where to begin. Did you come away with some ideas on how to begin? How to take well, the first step? You know, I think it's a matter of it, it. It is it is trial and error in many cases, and I have a chapter that looks at it's kind of the process of change, and it it can vary so much. Like the the Liz Alderman story is one where, you know, there was trial and error. She got involved in a lot of different things before they they hit on the idea of the foundation. Some people kind of wake up with a light bulb going on, um, and, and sometimes it's a matter of bringing to the fore something that was already in your life. So an example there is um, a journalist in New York named Andrew Revkin, who's a well-known environmental and climate uh, climate science writer, worked for the New York Times many for many years. He was the founder of the Dot Earth blog, and his jolt was a a, tr- a stroke that hit him in his 50s uh, out of the blue. He was a very, very healthy, you know, young guy. And Andy, in addition to journalism, had a sort of a second life in music. He lives in the, the Hudson Valley region north of New York City and had been steeped in playing guitar and mandolin and banjo his entire life and was sort of part of the, the folk music ecosystem up there. You know, it was where Pete Seeger lived and was part of that whole world, but you know, it was always very secondary. His music was already very secondary to his writing, but he, he wanted to do more with it. He was writing his own music and this is something we'll always, you know, he always would say to himself, I'll get to that at a later point. And after the stroke, he said, you know, I, I really, I better get on this now. Yeah. You know, it was that moment of saying, I don't have forever. Yeah. And he said to me, uh, you know, I love journalism, but it wasn't my passion. My passion was music. And so he's really jumped, you know, both feet into the music and record, made albums and done more with that. He still still writes as well. That really resonated for me personally as well, because I'm like him that way. I've been playing the guitar and banjo since I'm a kid. And it's something I've kind of dived back into the last five or six years. I mean, part of it was hearing his message was like, well, if you love something. Well, I, you got to get on it and do it. Yeah, and I think there's a broader takeaway from these stories, and that's that change is possible. And even if you're in a really bad place and you've been through really difficult times, change is possible. And looking forward to um, what you want your life to be like or what you want to do with your life, and then just taking any step 
can can get you moving. And it can be scary for sure. Uh, but I look at these stories of people who have been able to find the strength to come through some of the most awful traumas imaginable and say to myself, well, what a gift it would be to be able to make that change happen without having to experience the severe traumatic event. And, you know, one thing, one point I like to make about this is that even though the stories may seem in the book may seem sort of set apart because they're dramatic, uh, you know, trauma is just a part of everyday living. We all experience traumatic events to one degree or another. Now we're not going to all go through some of the really severe things that I write about, but you know, there are things that happen in our lives and can we make, can we make use of those? I guess would be a way to put it. Um, can we stop and contemplate the meaning of those events and put them to use as we try to sort out, you know, how we really want to spend our time? And I think it's very possible to do. It does, it does take some hard work, but, um, as you say, it is very possible. Well, I think that's a, a good upbeat note to end our conversation on Mark. And I, I agree with you. And as a coach, again, I have the opportunity to hear other people's stories and to see again and again people working their way to a new kind of place in their life. So it's a lovely book, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's moving but inspirational. And um, in your other parts of your career, you have all kinds of good practical advice. So I um, I hope people will uh, look at your website and look at the book. And it's been great having you here today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Bev. I really enjoyed talking with you today. Today, we've been talking with author and journalist Mark Miller about work and retirement issues, and also about how some people survive traumatic experiences and emerge stronger than ever. Today's career tip is that we all experience difficult situations that may throw us off track. We all face bad things that we can't change, but each of us can choose how we're going to go forward and how we're going to use our energy, and that can help us build resilience. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. If you have comments or suggestions for our show, we'd love to hear from you. Please email me directly at beverlyejones at me.com. That's B-E-V-E-R-L-Y-E-J-O-N-E-S at M-E dot com.